This is Unfortunate History. What's up, everybody? This is Cody Pennington. And this is Greg Skinner. And welcome to Unfortunate History, the podcast that covers the wacky, interesting, and unfortunate moments in history. And we've gone into some pretty deep territory the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. We've gone through the war on drugs, obviously. That was a two-parter, really big series. Yeah, Uh, It wasn't even that big, actually. I mean, there was a lot to it, but we decided to condense it to two episodes. But then we went into the war in Afghanistan for our little history quickie. So there's been a lot of heavy stuff that we're talking about. So we decided to take a little break from that, I suppose. It's hard, though, because this actual topic is not really that lighthearted. There's actually quite a lot of tragedy in it. Nope. And you could say we are staying heavy, but heavy metal. Oh, that's right. What a segue, Greg, because we today we are discussing Motley Crue. Shout at the devil! Shout! 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 Shout at the devil! Shout at the devil! (laughs) (laughs) I'll know a bit about this topic. It's one of the few where I'll come in knowing bits. I've I've read the dirt. Yeah, exactly. But a long time ago, so don't think I'm going to... you know, know everything, and I've also seen the shitty movie, but let's not go into that. Yeah, we won't go into that, especially not in this episode, because we got a lot of stuff to get through for this first part. But, Greg, like you said, you actually know a lot about this topic. I was reading The Dirt. That is our mm-hmm. main source for today, The Dirt, written by Motley Crue in um, uh, in connection with... Oh, gosh, I forgot his name. Ooh, let's, let's look that up real quick, actually, because uh, I know it's right here, but... Uh, Neil Strauss. Strauss. Yeah. Okay. So it was written in, in conjunction with Neil Strauss. I assume he did most of the writing and they just kind of <laughs> talked to him while they were drunk and high and getting some form of blowjob because they have what a is, lot of different types of blowjob in this story. Yeah. Yeah. Blowjob is a big, big theme for Motley Crue. See, I really like Motley Crue as a teenager. I've grown up a bit since then, but I still indulge every once in a while. I thought, oh, go back. Let's, let's, listen, let's listen to a bit of Motley Crue. Let's, let's actually, let's get this uh, point out of the way. I hate Motley Crue. <laughs> I do, man. I am so sorry. And oh, we probably, I, I, it makes me feel like we probably should have done a different band. <laughs> but I hate Motley Crue. See, I, I, I understand why you would. I get it. Here's the thing. I don't hate them because of their antics or anything like that. I just don't like the music. I literally just don't like the music. Partially, I think it might be because of the way it was recorded. Because you can go back and listen to, say, like Frank Zappa, who mm-hmm. was before Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. But Frank Zappa, Zappa's recordings were so good. His recordings sounded so good, even for the time period. And Motley mm-hmm. Crue's recordings just sound like doo-doo to me. Like they were all recorded <laughs> on cassettes. And I think that's why I'm just not... Eh. The newer stuff obviously gets better in that. But, mm. I mean, you th- listen to these like songs that would be legitimately huge like shout at the devil would be enormous it's, it is enormous song but when it you listen to, but when you listen to it it just doesn't sound enormous as it should to me i feel like it should be it would just it, i feel like it should sound like it's being played in the stadium but it sounds like it doesn't sound like it to me well home sweet home oh home sweet home's great yeah, there you yeah. go. I love there Home you go. Sweet Home. There's your one. Yeah, yeah. I love. No, there's, there's. That's a great song. They have great. They have good songs. But generally, I'm just not. I'm just not a fan. I've seen them play live. I saw them on their Carnival of Sins tour, and um, Tommy Lee had gotten burnt 
by his pyrotechnics the week before, so he didn't do his crazy ass drum solo where he was supposed to swing back and forth between so you know uh, through a suspended drum sets, and he didn't do that. So I had to watch Mick Mars. Uh, be still <laughs> I, yeah we're gonna get into that as well i hate to say that because they make fun of him so much throughout this book um mm. throughout the dirt and i feel so bad for it we're gonna get into all of their backstories um so you're gonna you're gonna know what we're talking about right now i feel really bad for him uh for mm-hmm. Mick mars when he when he goes i mean he's he's an all right guitarist but he, he's not the best you know what we're gonna get into all this as we go along i think uh, <laughs> the critique has already begun i think you could say that about all the members of motley crew like they're all right yeah musically they're not great <laughs> they're not no but you, that's going to be a point i think that we're going to really make in the second episode because it's really it's it's god it's hard to describe them um as a band it's hard to describe them and how they even had the the effect that they did which mm-hmm. is, it's just weird it's very very odd to me but it makes a lot of sense when you look at it in the context of the 1980s mm-hmm. because the 1980s were known for three things. Okay. Big hair, drugs, and metal. And which subgenres of metal is pretty much up for debate? Hair metal, glam metal, all that kind of shit. But generally, we'll just say metal. Yeah, I think it is more like hair metal, glam, that sort of thing. It is now, but then it was metal. You know what I mean? It was... It, there wasn't much else. I mean, you had like Sabbath, Black Sabbath and all that before then. Mm-hmm. But I still think this would still be considered metal. It's still a part of metal. It's not necessarily, it would be a, a subgenre. I would consider mm-hmm. Motley Crue hair metal myself. But yeah. they consider themselves metal and we they probably mm. might see this. They might even listen to this episode because it's going to be on Spotify and it's going to be <laughs> named Motley Crue. They might be going through being like, what's this? And I, I, I feel like Nikki Six has better things to do. <laughs> he definitely does. D- Tommy Lee, I think, is just chill so he could listen to this tommy hey. tommy lee's busy man he's yeah. working with post malone and stuff. that's true he does a lot he does a lot of side stuff um outside of motley crew which i can't imagine they're doing much right now <laughs> yeah i think mick mars probably maybe has the most likely to listen to it maybe and i hope he does because he seems the most i don't know he seems really cool down to earth and the way the way his chapters go he's the kind of guy that i'd like to have a beer with yeah personally but these three things, big hair, drugs, metal, there were very few groups that personified these tenants more than Motley Crue. Of course, there were tons of groups that personified them, mm-hmm. but Motley Crue rode the shit out of these big hair, drugs, and metal. I mean, it was it was a big thing. Mm. And I, I will say now, we're going to be diving straight into, uh, Greg, is it, um, let's see here, it's uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll? It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay, yeah. there we go. <laughs> <laughs> As long as I get that right. Sausage rolls. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Now, seen as one of the most influential bands for the time period, the cruise story is one of complete and utter debauchery, as well as painful tragedy. Because this is one of the things that you guys might be wondering. Why the hell is a podcast called Unfortunate History covering Motley Crue? Mm -hmm. Well, for one, our rule is it's got to be 20 years in the past. Obviously, Motley Crue was well they began 20 years in the past Mm -hmm. and then also it has to have some kind of tragedy in it and they absolutely are surrounded by tragedy the whole band is surrounded by tragedy i was was about to say every single member had thought their own individual moment or moments if you know what i mean lord there is a lot of tragic stuff going on in their lives a lot of it i feel is self-inflicted yeah definitely (laughs) the majority of it is self-inflicted but you can definitely see where them being a part of the scene in the 80s, especially in California and L.A. Mm. But you can see where it comes from. And then just 
stemming from that, all of the crazy shit they did, it's just, it's just, it is really intense. And the stuff that, uh, the tragic part of it, the, the stuff that really, um, that you would expect to be tragic in a band story mm-hmm. is extra tragic. <laughs> there's yeah. so much more to it in Motley Crue's storyline. And I mean, there's so many, ba- I mean, I don't even know if Ozzy Osbourne's um, story would be this tragic. And he's been around for longer, and I can imagine he's gone through some shit. Uh, We haven't researched him yet, but... I think, as a collective, yeah, probably with all the stuff that has happened to him, it's, again, it's a miracle. It's Just thinking that they're actually all still alive now... God, yes. It's it's mental. That is insane. It is insane. Lived it. They, these guys weren't posers. <laughs> they certainly weren't. That's one thing that we need to make clear: is they were not posers. Look, the way they did dressing that it was to get attention. So it was sort of in a way posery. But the way they lived their life, they took the rock what it meant to be a rock star and just amped it up. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean, turned it turned it to eleven. Yeah, to Spinal Tap. Yeah, but they, they did. They took they took that and they really. Kick the shit out of it, <laughs> like um, yeah. And I say that I don't like them as a as a band in that, but I definitely respect them for what they did. I don't respect them for a lot of the stuff they did, off, uh, you know, outside of music. They were mm. they. This is one thing that I I kind of want to make clear in how we tell the story is that we're telling it from the lens of these guys were fucking dickheads. They were yeah. terrible people um, for the large majority of their lives. They were terrible fucking people for some, you know, I mean, some of them had reasons for that. But still, this is the lens that we'll be taking is that they were shit heads. They and, were, and, and they were shit to each other as well. They were. It, it was them against the world. They were shit to each other. Yeah, it's literally they all had their own vendettas to, to just take out on the world. And they came together in this colossal tornado of just tragedy and then they yeah. wrote some good songs got kind of famous uh, got very famous. V- very famous very of course famous. but i mean they, they wrote some kind of good songs is kind of what i meant to say they wrote some kind of good songs got very famous got very rich very rich and then just fucking went they were nuts the whole way through they uh, it's just it's insane i don't know how we're going to get through this whole story i know we've been talking for about 10 minutes now but i, yeah. I don't know how we're going to get this through this whole story without saying uh, in in so many episodes, I th- I feel like there's so much to tell here. We're gonna have to try to to whittle it down. This could easily be a three part series. So it's a big story. So I am gonna ask um, you listeners after this episode, if you think that you've enjoyed this episode enough that you could hear three episodes of Motley Crue, email us at in- info at unfortunatehistory.com and let us know, and I will make sure that we have the uh all of the research padded out to fit into three episodes because what i've done so far could easily fit into three episodes because today we're only really going to be talking about all four members backstories so we're actually going to talk about how they uh where they grew up how they grew up and then how they ended up meeting each other and forming the band motley crew that's all we can get to today in about an hour an hour and a half So if you want to hear three parts of this, if you're not going to get bored talking about, like I said, all of the crazy different types of blowjobs, you know, the the front blowjob, the back blowjob, the big blowjob, the small blowjob. The, the under the table blowjob, yeah. the over the table blowjob. <laughs> Between the tables blowjobs. These the, two are, mouth, the two mouth blowjob. <laughs> the kind of gay blowjob. Where'd that come from? <laughs> the me giving the blowjob. <laughs> the me questioning my sexuality. That kind of blowjob. <laughs> I'm going to need to take a sabbatical from the band, I need to go do a tour of my own sexuality. <laughs> I've 
I'm going to take a tour of cock. Yeah, just just literally just a tour over Asia, seeing all the different types of Asian penises. Just loads of Polaroids of different penises. <laughs> this was in Indonesia. Mm, look at that one. Asian peni, as far as the eye could see. <laughs> It was everywhere. I just gave them twenty yen and they'd get it out for me. <laughs> Guys, that's Delicious. not a part of that's not a part of this story. It'll probably play a small part of the next episode, but definitely not part of the story. Now, Nikki Six, Tommy Lee, and Mick Mars. Oh, sorry, Nikki Six, Tommy Lee, Mick Mars, and Vince Neil are namesakes within the '80s, and obviously now everybody really knows their names for all different types of reasons, mostly being related to Motley Crue. But Tommy Lee had his own fucking thing going on. But <laughs> they were obviously uh, namesakes in the '80s mainly owing to their ridiculous antics, their tragic lives, which is a huge part of the story, and obviously some catchy tunes here and there, which I'll have to say, I have to agree with them throughout the book. Throughout the book, they kind of just slate a lot of their records to the (laughs) point where they say, oh, you know, we had at least two good songs on there, but that was it. We hated it. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. (laughs) I get it too. (laughs) Because it's funny because all of their singles were the ones that i was like okay this is pretty good i mean dr feelgood was a good album because that was that's their comeback album which we'll get to obviously in one of the episodes but yeah that one's catchy as hell you know he's one that makes you feel all right (laughs) he's gonna be your frankenstein it's so stupid (laughs) 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 nobody looks at it and goes you know what you know what's gonna rhymes with all right Frankenstein. Yes. And then three other people in the room went, yeah, dude. Yes. Do you know who actually did the Dr. Feel Good on that song? Mm-mm. It was uh, Steven Tyler and Brian Adams. Oh, well, Steven Tyler was, um, well, they were pretty big fans of Steven Tyler and I guess vice versa as well. But Brian Adams, what was he doing in the room? We might, <laughs> I just can't picture. He was probably in the same studio in LA. They're all going to be recording in the yeah. same studios yeah. and they're going to be recording on the same days in just different suites. So whatever. But see, the band, Motley Crue, took the world by storm in the 80s, and they left a very, very interesting story to tell, which we will attempt our very best to do in this series. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, I'm not a big fan of Motley Crue, but I can respect their stories, and their stories are really good. And like I said, we're going to be going through only backgrounds today, literally from childhood up, kind of except for Vince, because Vince doesn't really have a childhood chapter much yeah in, in the in, yeah and he i guess he may maybe didn't want to go through that but there was a, quite a lot of stuff with vince uh because he was quite young when he joined the band anyways he was he was yeah. uh, 18 or 17 yeah. so um he didn't really have much to tell except you know the years very soon afterward which we'll get to in the next episode of yeah. kind of the really tragic stuff that kind of popped up <laughs> <laughs> which well like you said self-inflicted but we'll get yeah. to that not all of it self-inflicted, but the majority of it. Yeah, is. yeah, definitely. But first, I think we should start with Nikki Six. Yeah, because Nikki Six, he was generally accepted as the leader of Motley Crue, and he is one of the most. He has one of the most heartbreaking early lives that we could talk yeah. about. Yeah. He's a very, very sad childhood. He was the primary songwriter of the band. He was, yeah. It yeah. was his band. It was Nikki yeah. Six's band. Everybody else was just happy to be along for the ride, pretty much. Well, I wouldn't say happy, but... <laughs> That's true. Not most of the time. He, he was the leader. He was the driving force of Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And if it sounds like I'm drinking, I am. I am drinking a Stara Pramen. So, Stara Pramen. Good yeah. beer. I'm drinking Aldi's own. Good stuff. Aldi's own. <laughs> 
beautiful. Cake this is shape. this is how much we make from this podcast. <laughs> Please share it with your friends and family. Yep. Now, Nikki Six was born in San Jose, California on December 11th, 1958, four days from my birthday, obviously uh-huh. about 50, you know, 40 years later. <laughs> his family life was almost instantly unstable with his father leaving when he was three years old. Mm-hmm. Now, about three years after that, Six's mother also felt that she couldn't handle being a parent. And according to an interview Six gave, he said, quote, I was six and she said... I'm going to lock the door and I'm just going to leave you on the porch. And she couldn't wait until my grandparents got there. So she just left with this guy in a truck and that broke me. Fuck. You imagine know. six years old, your yeah. mother saying your grandparents are going to come get you. I'm locking the door. Mm. Don't let the fucking door kick you on your way out. You know what I mean? Like what a horrible thing to do to a six year old child, to any yeah. child, but a six year old child that's terrible. Um, I'm trying to think of what his real name is. My Frank apologies. Fer- yeah, yeah. It's Frank, Frank Ferrana. Fer- Frank Ferrana, yeah. He's named after his yeah. father. Yeah. My, abol- my apologies. I, I didn't have his full name on there, but it is Frank Ferrana. Mm-hmm. Now, luckily for Nikki Six, life with his grandparents when he was picked up after sitting on the porch, it was a bit more stable, at least in terms of like the nurturing he received. Mm-hmm. So he did receive a lot of nurturing and love from his grandparents, but money was a completely different issue. Yeah. Six and his grandparents were always generally poor and they would constantly move in search of different places to settle, different work to do, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And he would move so frequently that he would be enrolled in a new school pretty much every six months. Yeah. Now, the group lived in trailers most of the time, actually, pretty much all of the time until their last stop. But he would sleep in a sleeping bag, I believe it was, and his grandfather would sleep on the floor. Jesus. Um, in the trailer, and his grandmother, I think, would sleep on the, I think they said it was the driver's seat, something like that, or the passenger seat, something like that. Um, okay. Eventually, they did end up in Idaho, and his grandparents purchased a cornfield in Twin Falls, and the area was the complete opposite of what we would know as Nikki Six today. You know, yeah. it's nowhere yeah. near what you would think Nikki Six would be. It's a very small town in the middle of Idaho, mm-hmm. which is probably why he didn't necessarily fit in. Yeah, no, has he ever? <laughs> he does. He hasn't really, but I feel like that's kind of a point with them. Yeah, especially Nikki Six. But see, stemming from Six's difficult upbringing, he really started to, to develop an anger that he found really difficult to control. And this was kind of in his early teenage years. He actually described a time where he was, after being bullied, he beat up his bullies with a metal lunchbox that he had brought to school. <laughs> and after that, he would just beat the hell out of anybody that messed with him, which is fair enough, you know, fair yeah, enough to can, do that. Yeah, I can say well. Yeah. But in the hopes of putting his anger to better use, he joined the school's football team, and he loved that. He did very well on the football team, be, uh, except when he got upset, he would just take his helmet off and start hitting the other players with it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like pure Motley Crue style, but... He, he was a very violent child, and you could see there's a huge violence grow, steadily growing, and just basically issues stemming from his abandonment from his parents. Yeah, as as you would, as you you certainly would. Yeah, I definitely would. Yeah, my dad left, but he's back now. So <laughs> whatever. I mean to laugh at the way you nonchalantly went. He's back now. <laughs> mm. He comes and goes. Now, Six's grandparents couldn't actually handle him anymore because he started to get really unruly, very violent. Um, I believe he did a bit of drugs or at least drinking around this time. Um, it doesn't really, really come in until in just a few minutes. I suppose it stems to living in like a small town, doesn't it? There's nothing to it do. It does. 
Yeah. I mean, there was meth galore in my hometown. Really? Portland, Tennessee. Yeah. Woo! It was really rough. It was really rough. Yeah. So his grandparents actually sent him to live with his mother in Seattle, and it was here that he really thrived in the degenerate scene. I mean, this was a place that was really big. Yeah, Seattle's (laughs) big, you know. Um, It was in Seattle that he started to gain an interest in playing in a band. He was really, he wasn't really interested up to this point. But the only issue that he found himself in was that he had no instrument, nor money to buy one, nor did his Mm. mother, he had no way to get one. So he borrowed his friend's guitar case. I'll know this story. He went to a local music shop, and then he asked for an application for a job. And when the salesman turned his back, he grabbed one of the guitars hanging on the wall, stashed it in the guitar case, and then just walked out of the shop. And luckily, he wasn't caught, actually, but he left the price tag hanging out of the case. (laughs) And the way he describes it in The Dirt, again, our main source for this episode, he just banged the case into everything on the way out of the shop. Just like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll send in this application in just a couple of days. Like if you've ever heard like an acoustic guitar just sort of drop, yeah. it's, it's, it's so loud. It's yeah. what I imagined the meteorite that what the dinosaurs hitting the earth sounded like. Yeah, an acoustic guitar falling over in the middle of the night. That shit is so loud. And and it's so that. terrifying. But it's like Boom. that, that, and then something metal falling on the strings and bouncing off them because. That's yeah. terrifying as well. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's the worst. You know, that sounded extensive. Yeah. Well, now that Six had his guitar, he had his, well, instrument, he didn't really know much about it, which will come no, into that, play in just a that, second. That's, that's the thing, like, it, 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 he nicked the guitar because he wanted to be in a band, and a, the band he wanted to join needed a bass player. Yes. And he didn't, he didn't know that he'd stolen the guitar. He just thought they were the same thing. Well, the thing is as well, <laughs> when he arrived in Seattle, his classmates said, you look like you're in a band, are you? And just to be cool, he said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he didn't know how to play music whatsoever. So he Smart. ends up finding this out this band, like you said, needed a bass player. And he went to go show them his new uh, instrument <laughs> at practice. And he actually, he quotes, I'll quote him, he said it. He came up to their practice and said, you need a bassist. I'm your guy. And they said, well, you need a bass. And he said, beautiful. Threw the guitar, threw the um, case up on the, on, the, on the counter, opens up the guitar case, and the band told him that he was a fucking idiot. And that was a bass guitar. So then he decides to take this stolen guitar and used the money. He sells it, uses the money to buy a bass guitar. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he was literally the epitome of Motley Crue from the moment he was born. Literally just making it up as I go along. <laughs> like, no big deal. I'll just hawk this thing. Like, <laughs> what kind of fucking teenager is this? I feel like every step of the way, he's like, all right. Yeah, that's all, right. all it is. He's like, yeah, sure, why not? All right. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> if I got to say, we're going to get to Mick Mars' story in just a bit, but if I got to say, Nikki Six, compared to Mick Mars, I think he had it a bit easier in this time in his life. Obviously, his very early life was horrible, mm-hmm. and Mick had a better early life, and that can really fuck somebody up for life. But I think this, he kind of just went along with it. He did struggle, and he did work really hard. All of them pretty much worked relatively hard, except for Tommy. Tommy seems to be, he just had support the whole fucking way, it seemed yeah. like. He, <laughs> and he, he, he seemed pretty carefree, if I'm honest. Yeah, so. yeah. The way he uses dude and bro throughout yeah. the entire book, yeah. all of his chapters, it's just like, he's so carefree, man. I just, I would love to be uh, in his mind for a second. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be in Nikki Sixes. I feel like it would just be like the burning gates of hell. Just yeah. ah! <laughs> it's just darkness. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no, Mick Mars's uh, brain yeah. is just darkness. You get in there and it's just a couple of grunts every now and then from behind you. You're like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> oh, it's my own brain. That's my, 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 the, the extent of his conscience is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's an A chord. <laughs> it hurts to exist. <laughs> We're playing. We're playing in C. <laughs> oh fuck! I don't want to be here, but God won't take me. <laughs> take me. Just take me. He just won't take me. <laughs> well, throughout most of this time in Six's life, he was developing a pretty large drug problem, which is what we described earlier. Mm-hmm. He was doing less harmless, dr- less harmful drugs like marijuana and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But he was also experimenting with acid and crank which is just jumping right off the fucking deep end uh, oh, yeah. in terms of psychedelics mm-hmm. and in terms of just, um, well, meth. Pretty much crank is a form of meth, isn't it? So, I mean, literally going for the heaviest shit he possibly can. I feel like maybe that was just the 80s, but still, that's that's pretty fucked up. To Is, is crank not crack cocaine, or I got my drugs wrong? See, crank, uh, what I looked up was a form of meth. Oh, Actually, I think it, it could have been cocaine and meth. You know what? Uh, this is a good reason for you guys to email us. Email us and correct us, and we'll correct it on the next one. If, yeah, need if, to. You're, if you're a drunkie, let us know. What I got in America was that crank was a form of meth. But it, I, might, it, might, it might be a mix. Um, I, I assume it's a mix. Definitely assume it's a mix, it's, but I'm not no, sure. No, Something you smoke from a pipe? Again, I've never smoked drugs, so... Nor have I. Apart bar weed. I mean, like, you know, smoked hard drugs from a glass pipe. I've never done that, so no, I can't really say I. I know much about that section. Yeah, see, I thought it was a form of meth, but I, we'll see. We'll see what the emails say. Info at unfortunatehistory.com. Mm-hmm. Now, soon, he and his mother had a very vicious fight in which Nikki decided it was a great idea to just get her arrested so he could be done with her. Yeah. So he destroyed their house, went outside, <laughs> broke all its windows, and then he ran to a friend's house and stabbed himself in the arm near the elbow to the point where he could see bone. <sighs> and in his words, he describes as saying, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel anything. And actually, it looked kind of badass. <laughs> Which is... Po- okay, hindsight is 2020. You know what I mean? I'm pretty sure if I'm looking at my own bone, I'm going to go, oh, fuck, this was a bad I, idea. I will... I will, you know what? I'll put the, uh, I'll put my bet on. He went, the whole time he was doing it. And then he was, and then afterward he was like, afterward he's like, oh God. Oh, and he's like, I can, I, I can imagine he did not just go. It's <laughs> 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 just stab the shit in. I can imagine he, he probably did not do it very easily. No, I think your body has a natural response to try and stop you doing that. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. Well, after stabbing himself, he decided to call the cops to claim that his mother was abusing him, again, so he could get her arrested. Now, according to the book, The Dirt, there's another conflicting account of this, and some of the stories, I think, in The Dirt have been caught, have been walked back in some ways, but I'm not going to go through and try to find every story that's been walked back. We're just going to use The Dirt as a source. If they <laughs> lied, they fucking lied. But <laughs> according to the book, he decided to not press charges when he discovered that he would be sent away from home. And he would obviously be sent to some kind of um, either an orphanage or, or a temporary home, and he wouldn't be able to play guitar. He wouldn't be able to jam. I'm so, not sure. Th- I'm sure this happened before his music stuff. I might be wrong. Well, he had his music equipment. Oh, he did at this point. Yeah, because he stole the bass guitar and all that. He stole I the guitar. That, I, I thought. I thought that his uh, throwing his mum under the bus came after that. But again, it's been a long time since I read the book. 
It, it did come after when he stole the uh, guitar. So he steals the guitar. Okay, okay. I understand. Sells yeah, okay. it for the Wrong bass. Track. And then he's developing his drug problem. Now he's he and his mom get into a pretty vicious fight because he's in Seattle still living with his mom. And yeah. like I said, according to the book, he didn't press charges because he didn't want to leave Seattle pretty much. And he instead told his mother that he, he wouldn't press charges against her if she would just let him do what he wanted. And she agreed and six very quickly found himself homeless, <laughs> sleeping in a friend's car. <laughs> So that that went well. Yeah, it went very well for him. He pretty much instantly was homeless and sleeping in his friend's car, hanging out with them, doing drugs. Yeah. Just living a real degenerate lifestyle, pretty much. Yeah. I think if he was if if he didn't fall and find me Motley Crew, I doubt Nikki Six would be alive today. <laughs> I think we know plenty of Nixie Sixes or Nikki Sixes that have not made it that are still alive today. I think we I think there are plenty of them out, out there. Um I the, guess so, the yeah. weird guys that um that replace your tire. No, people who would if Nikki Six hadn't become Martin Licker and become who he was today, I think he would have just been a junkie. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And wouldn't have worked. Like, oh, <laughs> I think he would have. Junkies th- don't work. No, I think he would have worked because he has some incredible work ethic, which we'll touch on in just a moment. But I, I think he would have worked. He would have still. He would have found a way to support his drug habit, though. I don't know yeah. about in today's age, though, with it being so fucking expensive. But we covered this. If you want to know about drugs? Go back a few episodes. Yeah, just go back that. a couple of episodes you'll learn all about them <laughs> well after pretty much struggling living in his friend's car nikki decided that it was time that he needed just to get out of seattle because he was a bit he was kind of fed up he was in a really shit place he, he couldn't support himself he wasn't at home he begged his mother actually to help him get out of seattle and she met him at the bus station bought him a ticket because she didn't trust him giving the money <laughs> she didn't trust him with money so she bought him the ticket back to his grandparents' house in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And he goes back and actually goes for the summer. And here he doesn't cause any trouble at this point. He chills out, does a lot of work on the farm, and actually saves up enough money to purchase a guitar, which is pretty interesting. Um, what happened to the one, the last one? He still had it, but he wanted to purchase a guitar. He had a bass, but he wanted to get a guitar. Oh, really? Okay. A lot of the members in Motley Crue had multiple instruments. I mean, Mick mm. Mars started out on bass as well. Not today. Yeah, he did. We'll get to that in a moment. Because it's easy. It is easy and everybody needs a bass player. Trust me, if you want to make money in England, just become a bass player. Well, after a while of being on his grandparents' farm, Nikki Six's aunt, Sharon, uh, I don't know her last name. Uh, well, actually, at this time, it was J- uh, Zimmerman. So Sharon Zimmerman, she visited the farm with her new husband, Don Zimmerman. And he was actually a record, a record executive from Capitol Records. And for those of you that don't know music capital records is huge that he's that i'm sorry but that is such a stereotype of jewish people <laughs> what you just named his surname zimmerman and he's a record exec wait is he is he jewish is zimmerman well, uh, jewish zimmerman zimmerman's a jewish name isn't it i don't know i knew a guy that was Zimmer- oh you know what he he might have been jewish <laughs> that's a very jewish i'm sure it's a jewish surname he might have he a- might have hit it because in our small town i think they got killed what? He, Where did you grow up? No, I just mean that he would have gotten killed if he had released that he was Jewish. That's that. You say I mean like it makes it better. It just that just raises more <laughs> questions and answers. I'm joking, obviously, but I didn't know that Zimmerman was a was a Jewish name. I didn't know that. I might, but, I might be totally wrong, but to me, for some reason I thought Jewish. I don't know. Um, Man, well, that's that's your hang up, Greg. <laughs> if any Zimmermans, let us know if you're Jewish and if you're a record exec. 
I would like to know if there was any Zimmermans out there, or if you run a podcast network that you'd like to help us out. That'd be great. <laughs> Let me just go ahead and make a note here at uh, 30-something-odd minutes. Maybe cut Jew jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Jew jokes. It wasn't a joke. <laughs> maybe. I'm just putting the note down. Maybe. Re-listen. Listen Is it offensive? Listen hmm. back when, you've not, when you're not drunk on Star Promen. <laughs> Definitely don't do a Nazi episode next week. <laughs> Definitely not. Well, Don Zimmerman, like I said, he was the record executive, or a record ex- executive with Capitol Records. And those of you that don't know music, Capitol Records, records even today, is a very big record label. It's a very mm-hmm. big... I think at this time they had Black Sabbath. Oh, no, they were huge. And this is in the days. No, and record. Prince as well. Not Prince. Yeah. Uh, was Something it? like that. I think Prince went on to do it. But I think... Um, who did they say it was? Black Sabbath, maybe. And then... Uh, big big names. Uh, Queen, yeah. actually. I think Queen in America was represented by Capitol Records, I believe. They are they are huge. They're huge. And again, again, in this day and age, in this day and age, record labels were making a lot of money. It's not like today where they're folding left, right, and center. No. And there's only there's probably only like three big ones left now. Back then, this was a big name. This was someone you wanted. If they offered you a contract, you signed it. Oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, obviously, today there's pretty much two or three that own all the other smaller labels. They just kind of Sony, um, Sony, and um, Universal and Warner. Warner. Well, I, I think, think I think Warner owns Universal. I think the more the more do now. Um, yeah. I th- yeah, there's uh, Sony's huge, um, but yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I think, they, I, f- I think they used to be EMI, but that got bought out by Warner Brothers. I think they've all been bought out. Basically, every single record label, apart from those, there's a big three, and they're all the rest is like sub subsid. What's the word for it? Subsidiaries. Subsidiaries. Yeah. Yeah, you're all right. Them. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Because I think Columbia Records, which is huge, which has signed, uh, which has John Mayer on their label for the last. <laughs> How did, we, how did we get here? How did we get here? Every episode we go, John Mayer, Jeff Bezos. That's how it's running. You know Amazon what? You know records. what? Here, here, I'll, you know, here I'll say, okay. Uh, Columbia Records, who initially signed Coheed and Cambria. <laughs> that doesn't make you any less white. I was. <laughs> You've become more white. I've become more esoteric white. <laughs> I'm looking at you and you're getting, you're paler than your shirt at the minute. <laughs> And your shirt's bright white. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you had John Mayer, and then you tried to rescue it by going oh. Coheed and Cambria. Well, <laughs> let's be fair. Claudio Sanchez is Mexican. Yeah. He's Mexican. But he's the whitest Mexican. Ever. That's true. He is very white as Mexican. Yeah. Either way, Columbia. He I think comics. <laughs> he did, he writes. Hobby. He writes graphic novels, sir. <laughs> Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance does the same, and they're <laughs> very unwhite. <laughs> I'd say Jesus Cla- Christ! Claudio Sanchez and Gerard Way are equal parts white, even though Cla- I wouldn't. Even though Sanchez is actually Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Anyways, now. Zimmerman, actually, after he met Nicky on his grandparents' farm, he started sending him cassettes of musicians that Zimmerman was listening to in Los Angeles and signing, assumedly. So mm-hmm. that gave Nick, uh, that gave Six the idea to move to Los Angeles because instead of listening to these bands on a small farm in Idaho, he could just become one of them. He was pretty much he was missing this entire amazing music scene, which at this time it was very amazing. He was missing this amazing organic music scene, so he mm-hmm. thought, you know what, I'm going to move there, and he actually ended up moving there with his aunt and uncle. 
So he moved to LA. Well, the situation of him moving in with his aunt and uncle, this is a pretty decent situation for Nikki Six, a guy who wants to be in a band and wants to be in a famous band. He was living with a literal big shot record executive. There's a lot of opportunity there. That's a lot yeah. of opportunity for him right in front of his face. But instead, Nikki Six decided to go nuts and play music at all hours of the day in the house while staying out all night partying in the clubs, coming home whenever he wanted. And he was also very rude. He would never apologize for playing his music very loud. He would just kind of bombard his uncle with a bunch of questions about, hey, how is, who is this, uh, the suite? Do they do a lot of drugs? Tell me, blah, blah, blah. And he was very rude to his sweet. aunt and uncle. Who did ballroom blitz? That's yeah, sweet. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> I can guarantee they all did a shit ton of drugs. But, oh, big Tom. But he was so rude to his aunt and uncle that he eventually got kicked out of the house. And then he found a small apartment, but he, then he was eventually evict, evicted from that place. Until he actually wound up sleeping in a garage that he found for a hundred bucks uh, a month listed. Somebody listed a garage on on something. I don't know. That's, that's all it costs. That's Jesus LA. Yeah. I'll, I'll go and live in a garage for hundred quid a month. <laughs> oh yeah, I would too. Yeah. yeah. I want my mortgage gone. I want some money. <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. But while living in this garage, he actually worked a twelve-hour shift, six a.m. to six p.m at a factory all day, and then worked a nighttime shift from, I think it was 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. at a liquor store for most of the night. He would basically go home, uh, well, he would get up, go to the factory, go to the liquor store, steal a bottle of Jack on the way home, getting completely trashed in his garage, <laughs> uh, take a bunch of pills, pass out, wake up in uh, at about you know 5 in the morning, and then go off and do it all. Do it all again. He had cr- a crazy amount of work ethic. The dude, it's cr- you must. He must have felt like shit. Oh yeah, all the time, definitely. And they didn't have monster back then. <laughs> they just had speed. <laughs> that kind of, uh, monsters got me through work hangovers many a time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I don't know. But it doesn't make you feel any better. I don't I'm just know. Anxious, if... but faster. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, one night at this liquor store, a man walked in and the two started talking about music. Nikki asked him who he liked and, he, and the, the man said he liked some like more traditional players and that. And then he asked uh, Nikki what he liked and Nikki said, oh, I like, you know, the sweet and all that kind of stuff. And he tells him he likes this kind of stuff. And they disagreed because this man said, oh, I like actual players. Nikki told him to fuck off. And he said, no, fuck you. And they basically basically just disagreed on music taste. But then the guy told him to come to a show later that week if he wanted to see a good guitar player. And Nikki told him to get the fuck out of the shop, but he still <laughs> decided to go anyways. And he yeah. ended up being pretty impressed by the guys playing. And they both had a drink after the show. He forgave him for his terrible music tastes, and they... Um, who forgave who? Uh, well, Nikki forgave the guy because he was so good at guitar. And okay. he, forgave, he forgave him for having shitty music taste. <laughs> and then that guy turned out to be Mick Mars. Our guitarist of the band. But when they left the club, they barely kept in touch and both, both completely lost track of each other. Yeah. Now, Nikki okay. soon had a group together called London, and this turned out to be a pretty solid band. And yeah. he gained actually a lot of attention for it. And he would play at these clubs in uh, L.A., one called the Starwood, and they would sell out some nights doing really, really well. I, f- I feel like in those day and I, in that day and age, I feel like it was a lot easier to sell out a club than it is today. <laughs> well, yeah, because they were like $2 per, 
per ticket. <laughs> and Spotify wasn't a thing. Yeah, that's true. No offense, Spotify. Please, please, please come and make us an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, you, it's the least you could do. <laughs> you owe us this. Look. <laughs> that's, we are entitled. Well, Nikki Six gained a lot of attention from this band, London. But when Six's uncle put him in touch with Brian Connolly from the suite. <laughs> Brian Connolly told him that the music would never be popular, and he told Nikki Six over the phone, "Don't quit your day job." And uh, this de- it just completely devastated Nikki Six because Brian is one of his heroes. It was or? his hero. It was one of his heroes, and his uncle actually was able to set up the phone call. But then he just railed into him um, on this phone call, and it completely devastated him. Like, imagine if like John Mayer phoned you and said you're a shit lawyer for some reason. <laughs> I can imagine him doing it because he's kind of a dick. (laughs) He's kind of a dick. Your podcast is shit. Don't quit your day job. I'd be like, oh. (laughs) Fuck you, John. But you know, at this point, though, with all the stuff that he's done, it would be expected. I'd get it. If he called me up, I wouldn't even be surprised. I'd be like, let me stop you right there, John. I know exactly what you're going to (laughs) say. I know. I I know about your personality. I've read the story. (laughs) Taylor Swift's songs about you are totally right. Get. Get Claudio on the phone. He'll be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Nicest Mexican I've ever met. (laughs) Nicest, whitest Mexican ever. (laughs) (laughs) Now, after being completely devastated by Brian Connolly, soon enough, Nikki Six left his band London, and he decided to start putting together another group. And he went to see a band at the Starwood called the Sweet 19, or Sweet 19, just not no the. When a band doesn't have a the in the name, you know they're great. Sweet 19. <laughs> and they, he watched them perform, and he loved the sound of their drummer. So he got his contact info and met up with him to jam. That drummer's name... I have no idea. Who is it? Was Tommy Lee. <gasps> Tommy Lee? Who would have thought? It's Tommy Lee, yeah. Now, Tommy Lee was born on October 3rd, 1962. It was actually his name. <laughs> well, it's actually Tommy Lee Bass, I believe. I don't think it's Bass. Is it not Bass? No, it David, Lee Bass. Uh, David Lee Thomas was his father's name. Well, uh, Where did I get Bass from? Why made that up? Hold on. Oh, it is Tommy Lee Bass. Thomas Boom! Lee Bass. I, I know shit. I, it's, I'm dropping knowledge bombs for once. Wow, that's weird. Why did that not come? Oh, you know what? I just I might have just written it down wrong. Where did he get Bass from? I think that's just his surname. I think I think his mom was Greek or something like that. That's not his mother's last name. His mother's oh, last yeah, name, Greg, guy. was Papa Demetrio. <laughs> was it? Yeah, I got that one. That's right. the Greek bit then. Yeah, but that's not Bass. That's very far from Bass. <laughs> I don't know, but I knew there was Greek there. I knew something was Greek. Uh, Give me. Some oh no, credit. I'm sorry, I'm... David Lee Thomas Bass. Yeah. Yeah, my apologies. Total slip of the research uh, tongue there. I apologize. Mm. Tommy Lee Bass. Yes, he was born October 3rd, 1962 in Athens, Greece. That's the great thing. His father was David Lee Thomas Bass, and he was an army sergeant who proposed to Tommy's mom the moment he saw her. And Tommy's mother, Vasiliki uh, Papadimitriou, very Greek, yeah, was a Greek model who had actually been Miss Greece in the 50s. So she was very attractive. And this is why uh, this army sergeant was like, marry me, come on. <laughs> and she said yes. <laughs> she said yes. His parents were actually married within five days of meeting each other. But that's the, that's the weird thing, because from what I understood, they actually had a very happy relationship. And 
were very loving parents. Like, <laughs> they were definitely very loving parents, but she was not necessarily ecstatic about being where she ended up. I mean, well, oh. so they were, they couldn't really talk to each other. They had to draw pictures out to speak with each other in that. Jesus um, Christ. And very soon after being married, they started trying for a son. And they actually tried six times to have a child. She she miscarried six times. And on the seventh time, she had uh, she became pregnant with Tommy. And Tommy was born soon thereafter. And soon after his birth, the family then moved from Greece to Los Angeles. See, I've, I've felt like I've rushed with girlfriends before. I don't feel so bad about that now because that is rushing. I think his fam- I think his family stayed together for. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So maybe that's what you do, people. It's maybe <laughs> that she maybe that she just didn't know how to tell somebody to get her out of there. I don't know. <laughs> she just couldn't communicate. She couldn't so. communicate because Tommy's mother she knew very little English. Um, he basically like Lee describes it. He grew up in a house. As he got older, he began to understand everyone around him except his mother. Mm-hmm. So he could understand everyone speaking, except his own mother. Like, he couldn't understand a word she said. That's Eva. I'm sure she got, I'm sure, obviously, that's in his, when he was a child. But I'm saying, mm. you know, throughout him growing up, as in growing up three or four, you got memories from when you're three or four. You can't understand what your mom's saying. It's like, Jesus, you know, that is a very interesting uh, little bit of point, a uh, little point to think about when she was, foreign coming to la and the culture mm-hmm. shock that she probably experienced but like I, I couldn't imagine going to a foreign country not knowing the language i think i'd struggle <laughs> yeah definitely now vasiliki had to make money by cleaning houses which she absolutely hated she didn't like mm. having to clean houses while tommy's father he worked for the la count, uh, county road department and tommy puts in the book that she really wished that her husband, that Tommy's dad would be able to, would have been able to make more money so that she could quit her job. Cause she absolutely hated it. Cause she had gone from mm-hmm. being this badass model to being a home cleaner for people that she couldn't even speak to. So well, was, age catches up to you ladies. I don't and think she, she wasn't even that old. She was. Yeah. But in the model, in the modeling industry, you, you cut off at what? 30, 35. Something like that. But she still could have been, you know, going from being that to being nothing. Like, if I now had to go and be uh, in, like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but if I had to work at McDonald's, I'd feel like it was a huge step back because I've worked very hard to get to the point where I am now. And I understand that you would be very frustrated with because there's nothing you can do about it because she can't speak English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rough. It is rough. And and then she's kind of thinking, you know, this motherfucker brought me over to L.A. He needs to fucking provide for me. I don't know. How, I don't know how to speak, but he likes this. He likes hitting this. I, I he better. He better <laughs> I need me a sugar daddy. Yeah, That's what I definitely. signed up for. Now, when Tommy was three, he started to bang on drum, bang and drum on pots and pans in his kitchen, which actually started his journey towards music. Why does every drummer's story start with that? He used to bang pots and pans. You know, I'm a drummer, and I didn't bang pots and pans when I was growing up. I bet you did. My daughter bangs pots and pans. Maybe I did. I don't know. I'm sure you did, and your parents were just too blitzed out of their mind to remember. (laughs) (laughs) My parents aren't alcoholics. (laughs) I'm a dad questionable. No, he's not. (laughs) No, I don't think I did. I think they were doing that crank. That's where I get it from. Hmm. That's where that gene is. <laughs> well, after banging on their pots and pans for a while, Tommy Lee's parents decided they needed to actually get him a drum set, so they bought him one of those kitty drum sets for him. But he only used it for a very little bit until one day, in the book, he describes a milkman walking by playing an accordion. 
and this made him want to learn the accordion instead of drums. So he started taking accordion lessons with his sister. <laughs> He's the accordion player for Motley Crue. God, that can you imagine? Because he could play piano fairly well. He he made Home Sweet Home. You know the dun, 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 well. He also dun, went on dun, dun, to dun, dun, take um, piano lessons. No, I was going to say, but accordion has that one bit that's a bit pianoy, isn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's all about. It all has the same general keys in that mm-hmm. on it, so it, it it does go together really well. And it also must be said that no intelligent parent buys their child a drum set. Uh, I, I my, well, my parents bought bought me one actually. Funny exactly. Enough. So did mine. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, there <laughs> you go. I'm pretty sure they regretted it. <laughs> yeah, a lot, well, a lot like my life decisions that came after that. Yeah. Well, soon after his accordion lessons started, he and his sister actually went into tap and ballet lessons, which he absolutely loved. He loved being able to dance with the girls. Hmm. Afterwards, Lee tried his hand at piano, like I mentioned, but he hated the repetition of it. He hated going in and just running scales over and over and over and over again, which is kind of what piano is. It is a pretty big slog. But after piano, Tommy Lee decided to become really obsessed with learning guitar. (laughs) And finally, after seeing his high school's marching band, he turned back towards drums because he really liked the drum corps in the marching band. Came full circle. Now, his father decided to help him purchase a snare, but he then co-signed so that Tommy Lee could purchase his the rest of his first drum kit. And his father's reasoning was that Tommy wouldn't respect the drum kit if he purchased it for him, which I, I agree. That's actually Intelli- pretty good. Intelligent parenting. Yeah, and his dad made it clear, that, like, look, you need to do this yourself, but I will co-sign and I'll be there if you struggle with payments. So it was. It, he helped him out quite a bit. And not only that, his parents also soundproofed their garage, a garage for Americans, and made it into a practice space for Lee. They actually had to park their cars out on their driveway, specifically just so he could play drums in their garage. See, he got it easy as a musician growing up. He like, did, yeah. He did a get a lot of support. Wouldn't do that, like no. I wouldn't. For one, I didn't have a garage growing up. I was told to stop drumming very quickly after I started. Like, I would play for about 10 minutes and they'd say, all right, that's enough. And I'm like, how do you expect yeah. me to get better and pay for this <laughs> poor family's food? <laughs> oh, it was the same for me, but I understood why. Actually, no, to be fair to my parents, they actually did tolerate it. But I knew they were getting pissed off. I was like, I better yeah. stop now. I kind of knew that. I and even my neighbors, I had, I had these supportive old neighbors. And it must have been horrible for him. But they'd be like, to my parents, oh, he's getting better, isn't he? Is he going to get bored soon? <laughs> 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 and I'm there playing along to Queens of the Stone. I was like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, something Lee makes very clear in the dirt is that his parents were always very supportive of him, both of them. Yeah. Now he did relatively badly in school. He wasn't he was kind of a generally a troublemaker. He wasn't very he didn't make very good grades. Um but he did get into high school. And while he got into high school, he joined the drum corps that he had seen as a kid. And this right. was when he learned all of his nice little stick tricks that he would later use in Motley Crue. He actually says that yeah. everything he learned in drum corps, including drumming on the sides of the drums, doing all that, mainly the stick, uh, the flips and that, but <laughs> he would use all that in Motley Crue later on in his career, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, because I'm, I'm sure it was done before him, but I feel like he was the originator of that sort of flair behind the kit. If you think about it, he, he could be the first one in the 80s scene. To do it, yeah. Which well, I mean, I think, you know. I think I think some jazzers did it, but not oh, to sure, that extent. Yeah. Not to that extent. I think he was like kind of the first one to 
really, again, I suppose if you go back to jazz, you got big band drummers where they were the leader. But I think when it comes to like popular music, I think Motley Crue were one of the first bands where the drummer was as famous as the singer. If you know what I mean. Oh no, actually, I'm gonna call I'm gonna call you out on that because um, there is a clip of Sammy Davis Jr. playing drums. And he fucking nails it. He goes from doing vocals and stuff, but then he goes over and, and jumps on. Uh, well, he jumps on xylophone and he jumps on drums, and he just goes nuts. That's that's just showing off because he's not a drummer. He is <laughs> so good. He is a very good yeah, drummer. I, I know he's a good drummer, but he is still Sammy Davis Jr. He's still a singer and everything and dancer. He's just very talented. I'm talking about like someone who is purely a drummer in a oh, band. Oh, the untalented me. people. Yeah, them <laughs> ones. Yeah, me. <laughs> Those guys. Yeah. The easy job. Well, during Tommy Lee's sophomore year in high school, he started his first band called US 101. And they ended up playing a lot of school dances and backyard parties and blah, blah, blah. It was while playing these gigs that he met a very cool, badass dude by the name of Vince Wharton, better known as Vince Neal. Cooler name. Cooler name. Cooler name than Vince Wharton. Well, it was Vince Neal Wharton, but... I think it was. I think that's his full name. He probably had another hidden middle name somewhere in there, but it was. It was definitely Vince Neil Warden. Vincent like should, uh, Neil. I feel Warden. like I should start calling myself Greg David instead of Greg Skinner. Go straight for the middle name. Gregory Dave. Gregory David. My, Gregory my David Greg. sounds pretty good, actually. My name's Gregory Cody. No. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, a bit later than this, Tommy joined the aforementioned Sweets uh, Sweet Nineteen that we mentioned before who ended up having a pretty great gig at a venue called the Starwood. And this is the night that Nikki Six had seen him perform and got his contact details. And the two of them then, again, started jamming. They decided mm-hmm. to find a guitarist by putting out an ad in a local magazine, The Recycler, which is apparently how a ton of bands back then found their band members, was putting ads in The Recycler. Now, one of the guitarists they picked up, his name was Greg Leon, and he's actually a pretty solid guitarist. You can hear him play on some of the solo projects in that. But he mm-hmm. never got to the level of Motley Crue at all because Nikki yeah. Nikki Six eventually kicked him out because he was just a regular guy, which he was. <laughs> he was nowhere. I mean, in, even in his uh, video, in his album's promo video from like 2003, he's just wearing a t-shirt. There's no, yeah. there's nothing there. He's just playing music. I mean, so he didn't have the flair that made Motley Crue. <laughs> He's playing music to be a musician. Kind of like a modern day hipster musician. Or, well, playing music to play music. A great there's, YouTube guitarist. There is a difference between being a musician and being a performer. Yeah, and massively. Some massively. of the some of the best musicians I've ever met are terrible performers. So See, you, I personally feel like I'm a better performer than I am musician. Well, I think I feel the same way about myself as well. Like mm. I'm, I'm terrible at, at re- general music theory and um, all that kind of stuff, and my soloing could, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. But it's it's about like performing and giving a good show because you yeah. don't you don't watch a show with your ears. You well, know we did I mean? a decent time at the weddings. We had some good shit. <laughs> yeah, we had some. All right, it was good. Yeah, no, no, I think we're good enough. <laughs> we made money. Yeah. Well, next, they found another guitar player named Robin, and he was talented, but he was also what they called a pansy. He would tuck his shirt into his pants and act, quote, like he had gone to college for a guitar degree, but he did have cool hair. (laughs) 
I would hate to be these dudes mentioned in an autobiography like that. I know, I would be too. I would hate it. I'll be dropping. I'd rather them slag me off to the death than call me a pansy. I'd yeah. be like, if they were like, he was a prick, he was a dickhead, and I hated him, I'd be like, yeah, fair enough. Well, fair. Get- but if it was like, he took his shirt and he was just too normal, I'd be like, I'm suing you for <laughs> That is not true. That is not true. Well, it gets worse <laughs> for Robin in a few minutes. <laughs> Now, Tommy and Nikki continued searching for a replacement while they had Robin, but they didn't put out an ad because they had Robin. They didn't want to upset him, I think. It's, so it's, it's like, I'm not cheating on your girlfriend. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much, know? yeah. But they continued looking for a replacement, and they come across another ad of a guitarist advertising himself, and it said, quote, loud, rude, and aggressive guitarist available. So Tommy called, and the man that showed up outside Nikki's house, uh, and the man showed up outside Nikki's house a week later. And Tommy Lee describes this guy as a, quote, freaky-looking relative of Cousin It. <laughs> and this, again, was Mick Mars. Although Nikki and Mick didn't remember meeting the first time in the liquor store or at his gig, and I assume <laughs> it had something to do with the liquor, uh, but they didn't remember each other whatsoever. So how did they, re- how did they remember each other after? <laughs> they just ended up, it, it kind of ended up clicking you know, it, it kind of just came to their minds like, oh, you were that guy. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah. It just ended up coming out of nowhere. No, I guess. Well, Mick Mars was born ter- uh, born in Terre Haute, Indiana on May 4th, 1951. He was born Robert Allen Deal or Bob Allen Deal or B-A-D or as Mick points out, bad. <laughs> you get right, it Mick. do you get right. it greg he I'll was born it. bad he was born bad was he oh, even though it. even though it technically he was born rad <laughs> <laughs> gnarly <laughs> oh shit born that should be the name of the episode born rad <laughs> <laughs> Born bad, I mean rad. Or born rad, I mean bad. <laughs> you know, have you seen the film Dodgeball? He's like, yeah. This is Blazer, and this is Laser, and this is Taser. <laughs> this is bad. This is rad. This is Chad. <laughs> this is Tad. Ben Stiller is uh, the Shakespeare of our modern age. I'll fight anybody that says different. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I just wanted to find out the most, find the most the ridiculous. Meet the fuckers. It's the modern Shakespeare. And National History or National Museum. I think it's National Museum, was it? No, no, he is a slight upgrade. Night on, at the Museum, is that the one? <laughs> he's a slight upgrade on Adam Sandler. <laughs> oh, he's a significant upgrade from Adam Sandler. We're going to get hate mail, but I don't like <laughs> I Adam don't Sandler. don't read it. I invite it. You read it. You filter it for That's me. That's true, send, yeah. You just send me the good email. <laughs> I do, yeah. I, I kind of just deal with the, I internalize the bad stuff, swallow it, and let it fester into a tumor. In my gut. And then you send me the, the odd nice, and I'm like, no, that's nice. People really like us. Apart from Frank Serpico, who doesn't like me. He doesn't like your potato mouth. <laughs> yeah, well. Well, Mick <laughs> Mars was a bit of a troublemaker. And at the age of five, he actually tried hanging his older brother in a game of cowboys and Indians. Now, it wasn't, it was intentional that he hanged him. It wasn't intentional that he wanted to kill him, but basically he got his older brother to stand up as a, I think he was playing the uh, Amer- American Indian um, and his brother was the cowboy or vice versa, but he kicked a jug out from under him and had a noose tied around his neck <laughs> and then just walked off into the house. 
and left his brother hanging there while he struggled to breathe. And his aunt had to run outside and save his brother. That's a bad sign. That's a very bad sign. But he didn't really know that it was bad. It was. I suppose he is five. Like. He is five. He didn't know that it was life threatening. Mm. But you know. Well, Sign, I'll, I'll think my little brother was evil at the age of five. Yeah, maybe. And he's a police officer now. Well, sit, make of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not. He's a lovely lad. Doesn't listen, so it doesn't matter. Oh, good. <laughs> now, he, Mick, now, Mick Mars was introduced to music by his aunt Thelma when she took him and his brothers to a local fair. A country band was performing at the show, or performing a show at the fair, and he was actually mesmerized. He kind of says... Country music may have been his calling at the beginning mm -hmm. because after this, he was obsessed with music. He didn't care what type of music he played, but he wanted to play music. And even if country music was his calling, he would have been okay with that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you'll notice, he's kind of, he's quite a bit older than the rest of the band. About eight years, I think it is. Uh, I know there was an age gap. I know he was older. Yeah, there is. Uh, he's about uh, about eight or so years, something like that. I mean, it, it was generally around that. Um so there has been a bit of an age gap. When he grew up, there's different types of music that were that was popular compared to mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. compared to the other guys. So obviously he was okay with country music. They probably weren't. Well, the following <laughs> Christmas, his mother bought him a Mickey Mouse guitar, and then the Christmas after that, he was also gifted another guitar. So he was continually getting guitars randomly because uh, he had a, a relatively good childhood, like we mentioned earlier. And soon after, his mother gave birth to their first baby girl, but she was born with a collapsed lung. So the family had okay. to move to a more arid climate for her to survive. So not Birmingham, then? Not Birmingham. So they piled 10 members of their family into their tiny car and drove them a couple of hours, or actually not even a couple of hours, quite a, far, quite a, a ways to grow, uh, Grand Grove, California. Mm -hmm. Now, while he was here, his father worked for a container company, which made boxes and actually made boxes for Fender. Okay. And then his mother ironed clothes on the weekends to save a bit of money. She she only earned a bit of like $2 a day, something like that. But she actually saved up enough money to buy Mars, his first electric guitar. Jesus Christ, how much was an electric guitar? Though? I think then he said it was $98. So she saved up for a long time. Oh no, no, that one was forty-eight. I think uh, it was under a hundred bucks. You could get a starter guitar for that now. You could, but not uh, not a decent one. I mean, obviously this was this it was meant a, to be decent. Well, yeah, but I mean, back then that was a couple hundred bucks in today's money. So this is like a like a Mexican Mexican made Fender almost. Nah, it's more more top end Squire. Nah, I you, you, nah. you ain't gonna pick up a Fender for two hundred. Oh, I, I picked. Well, I wouldn't say it was two hundred. Uh, I don't know. Yes, it was a. It was an entry level electric guitar. Either way, it was, like, it was like good enough to gig with, but not great. Yes. Now he didn't actually have an amplifier because his family didn't make enough money to have an amplifier. So he actually created his own out of a stereo that his sister had. A phonograph, I think he said it was. Mm. Um, he basically tore it apart and then made it into a little amp that he could play along with. You know what? So many musicians back in the day did this. Like built their own guitars and basses and amps. Like in this day and age, oh. It, I wouldn't have a clue how to build. I'm looking at an amp now. I'm sat next to one and a guitar. Now, I would have no idea how to build either of these. Well, they were just smarter than us back then, I think. I think they were just more in intuitive. Like They just figured it out. Like They had no yeah. other options, so they had to learn to do it. They didn't even have YouTube. That's true. You could, you could give me a step-by-step -step tutorial of how to build an amp, and I'll get to step four and go, fuck this. 
I can guarantee that he talked to somebody about this. Yeah, he would have talked to, but imagine the effort. Imagine doing that effort. Now you'd have to go out, you'd have to find me, you'd have to talk to me, you'd have to take notes. God, I hate taking notes. His really old radio technician friend down the street, YouTube, he, he was a nice guy. <laughs> Eric YouTube. <laughs> he went up and talked to him. He tapped him on the shoulder a couple of times and said, you know, I, hey, YouTube, how do I make this into an amp? And then he showed him. Then he, then he called his other mate called William Wiki Howe. <laughs> <laughs> he was Jewish. <laughs> Don't forget about Greg Google now. He was he was the one that really put in the effort with Mick Mars. <laughs> <laughs> then he gave up and went to Ernie eBay and just bought a cheaper one. <laughs> <laughs> he sold a shit ton then of he, stuff. Then he found his old friend, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> 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 who's just Jeff Bezos now. He's, just, just, he's, he's so rich, he's just himself throughout all of time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, when Mick was 14, he joined his first band called The Jades, which was a Beatles cover band. And they played a couple of originals, of originals but he said that they might as well have been Beatles covers. You know, I, I, I think it's shit when a cover band plays an original. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. Well, band, when, if you're, when you're a cover band, though. Like, not when you're a band playing covers. No, I mean, no, if you're an actual band who does a couple of covers, play your own stuff, absolutely, I did that. But when you advertise yourself as a cover band, I don't want... If, if I'm going to see what a... Oh, fucking... I don't know, a... Um, a Guns N' Roses tribute band. All I want to hear is Paradise City and Switch Hold Them On. Don't go, oh, we've got one of our own songs. I'm going to the bar. No, yeah, you don't want that. I mean, well, they were paid 12 bucks for their gig, their first gig, and then they were not asked to return. So, <laughs> In this actual band is the one that... Uh, Mick Mars decided to start on bass, but he didn't. He then quickly moved to guitar when he, it was found out that he was much better than their guitarist. He, he didn't strike me as a Paul McCartney. No, he then started jamming with a local band slash street gang called the Garcia Brothers. And I say street gang. The Garcia Brothers were a legitimate street gang. They were very dangerous people. <laughs> See, Tony Garcia was a guitar player in the gang who would have his gang beat people up that claimed to be better at playing guitar than him, which obviously Mick did not claim it ever. But <laughs> Yeah, just don't tell him. He just didn't tell <laughs> just him. Just know yourself. Just yeah. know, you know. Yeah, but this, is, uh, but this is the type of people he was dealing with. But either way, he still ended up forming a band with the group because they had a lot of equipment and it was really fun to jam with them. Until their gang activity became a bit too much. There was actually a young girl that was killed during one of the gang's drive-by shootings, so Mick got the fuck out of there after a while. Yeah, yeah, you would. You know what I mean? If if, if we were on our way to one of our weddings, and he was like, oh, just hang on a second, they just walled the window down, they start popping off shots at someone you didn't like, I'd be like, Cody, let me out the car. <laughs> or I would, like, if it, were, if it were my car, I would just lock the windows <laughs> from rolling down that would stop a drive-by <laughs> yeah but if you want to commit it you've got the power i suppose so hold on one second let me just let me just turn the music down hang on i just gotta sort something okay i'm just like, blah, 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 blah. window up okay i'm glad that's out the way well good thing i'm a trustworthy person <laughs> now it was around a little it was a little bit after he left the garcia brothers when mick started experimenting with cross tops which is essentially trucker speed Okay. He then started experimenting with painkillers as well as a bunch of alcohol. Yeah, the, 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 the glue that binds all drug addiction together. I suppose Booze. so, yeah. 
Well, his family started to kind of grow tired of him. He started acting out a bit, obviously taking drugs and drinking and that. He was becoming a little bit unruly, so they decided to have him move out of the house. And he left and moved into a house with a group of bikers. And he <laughs> describes this as living like with with the Garcia brothers, but a bit more dangerous because all these guys mm-hmm. were strapped. But also, the bikers would apparently, he was very skinny at this point, and they would actually pick him up and use his hair as a mop whenever they spilled beer on the floor. Fucking hell. (laughs) And he he said he never protested because they had guns on them. (laughs) And they just said they didn't want to get their Levi's dirty. So, You know what? I'll be like, okay, I'm going to shave my head. (laughs) Like, try get that beer up with my scalp. They would just fucking go for it. I guarantee you they (laughs) would just try it. They would just push it around the floor with your body. Well... (laughs) When he was 19, Mars then started dating a 16-year-old girl named Sharon, and she was very soon pregnant. The rock star's nightmare. (laughs) Yep, yep, hold you back. Now, she told Mick that she was keeping this baby, and she found Mick a job at her laundromat where she worked. And a few months later, Sharon gave birth to their son, Les Paul, obviously named by (laughs) Mick. (laughs) He didn't. I don't think he ever had a Gibson, um, like you know, endorsement. That makes it even worse. <laughs> I think he. I think he. You know, he owned a Les Paul. Yeah, but I think he had the Fender one, which kind of goes against everything. He must have hated his son. He he liked a Le- no. He loved Les Pauls. He he. One of his one of his first guitars was a Les Paul. What did name the second one? Stratocaster. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Stratocaster Mars. Yeah. Go get bullied at school. Soon after their son was born, Sharon was pregnant again with their daughter. Now, Mick hated this life. He hated working. He hated working a a shitty job at a laundromat to provide for two kids and a wife. And she was kind of pushing him, as he describes it, she was kind of pushing him into this life of saying, look, you've got family now. Do what you need to do. I got you a job. Just shut up and work it pretty much. But he eventually told Sharon that he would not be working at the laundromat anymore and he was going to follow his his passion as a musician. And Sharon mm-hmm. decided to take the children and she left him on Christmas Day. Rough. Now, when he was still 19, Mick Mars started to notice that his hips and other parts of his body were in a great deal of pain, mm-hmm. pretty much radiating throughout his entire body at some points. At 19, that's young. Very young. And it was then that he was diagnosed with, and I'm going to say it wrong, but he was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. And I think it might be ankylosing or ankylosing spondylitis. I'm not 100% sure. But, but either way, this was a degenerative bone disease that affects the joints and ligaments around the spine. It's pronounced Samuel Pepys. <laughs> <laughs> But this degenerative bone disease, it makes it difficult for the joints and ligaments to move. So the spine gets very tight and you're not able to actually move it. And it gets tight and it also gets inflamed. So not only is it really stiff, it's also very painful. And this is what caused Mars's constant slouching appearance. That's It's what's caused it since his teenage years. And we mentioned it earlier that I was saying I feel bad for him because they... they you know, talk shit about him in the book and stuff, but obviously it's friends poking fun at, at, at a friend, but call, talking about him as like cousin it or calling him a hobbit or calling him, you know what I mean? This sort of like <laughs> a troll, like he's, it's a pretty big thing. It's going to suck because you, you can't help it. No, but he's around like 70 now, I think it is. And he's been dealing with this since, mm-hmm. since 19 and it, 
it, it has really affected him because this hit him really hard because he knew that it would eventually probably affect his playing mm-hmm. for years to come because he loved he loved music and it actually affected his performing at the very least because every time he went on stage he describes that he was just so upset that he would see Nikki and Vince bouncing around the stage and the literally the most that he could do was kind of walk around a couple of places barely move a little bit and smile at a couple of guests or a couple of the crowd, but he couldn't really do anything that was, mm. that was also, really, also, I was going to say, he's also not the best looking. <laughs> well, he's not, but I mean, also it's just difficult for him to, to give a show. I mean, there's plenty yeah. of not good looking musicians. Mick Jagger is fuck. It looks like a goddamn, <laughs> he, he looks like a fucking dried out desert. Rest in peace. Charlie Watts, by the way, on the, um, Rolling oh, yeah. Stones come out there, yeah. Big loss to the drumming world, very sad. Very true. But Nick was very sad about this. He was very hurt by not being able to move and entertain people. I mean, there are times when he's on stage where he says his guitar strap will get, will cause his shoulder to cramp up and his upper back. And it gets to the point where it's impossible for him to even move from pl- from a place. He just sits there and plays, and he gets through the set, and then he's in severe pain for the rest of the night i mean that's that's for one it's dedication but two it's very very tragic that he has to go through that every time he plays you know what you know when we was playing the weddings and you know when we get to that last song and we do don't look back in anger yes that's how i'd feel you'd feel <laughs> the, like mick the, mars the back eye could come in i'd be like oh god you'd be <laughs> you'd go. be marsin by then <laughs> <laughs> yeah the show is over then i've got a wet towel over me and i'm like let's just get this out the way <laughs> No, but no, but things though, if you look at him now, he has kind of become known for how he is, like to Motley Crue fans, like his show. People know him. him. Being, his show is him being still, yeah, but still shredding. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, people know like, and, and they accept him for it, which is great. Mm, they do. And the things that I, feel, I do feel like the band has become a lot nicer to him later on. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I definitely. Suppose that, I suppose that comes with maturity, maturity and sobriety. It definitely like, I know, does. I know, I know Nikki Six definitely looks up to the guy. Yeah, no, no what, I think what? I think they had they from the very beginning they had respect for each other definitely, mm. but they mm. but they obviously poked fun quite a bit. Yeah, the gunner went right, especially yeah. like we 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 didn't shy away from the fact that they were horrible to each other as well. Yeah, they are very terrible people to everyone, like we said, even to each other. Mm. Now, Mick Mars, after this diagnosis, he knew that he needed to start playing seriously. He needed to really get going because it was only a matter of time before this disease took the use of his hands. He wouldn't be able to play guitar in the least. Again, that's a very positive way to look at it because I know what I'm like, and I reckon if I got that, say if I was a, like I am a musician, but say if I was like, I had everything invested in drums, and I was like, oh, I've got arthritis of the wrist. I know I ain't got that much time to play. I'll be like, well, better give up now. Yeah. Well, you know, you have, you have semi okay on uh, benefits here. This was in the Mer- This was America in the sixties. He didn't have benefits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had, uh, playing music or working at that goddamn laundromat. But this need to start playing very seriously is what led Mick Mars to California it also led him to play in numerous bands over the years during his time in California, one of mm-hmm. which was actually referred to as a real, quote, Motley Crew. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Now, this diagnosis also led Mick to Nikki's liquor store the week of one of his gigs. And finally, it's also what led him to place the ad that got him to Nikki and Tommy's rehearsal. And now, here we are, back at that rehearsal. After walking in and talking for a bit, 
Mick told Tommy and Nikki and Robin that they should all go get drunk. And after getting really drunk, Mick pulled Nikki and Tommy aside and told them that that pansy Robin just wouldn't cut it in the band. And they told Mick that he could kick him out, that they would kick him out if he did it. So he walked up to Robin and said, quote, you're out of here. There's only one guitar player in my band, and that's me. And then Robin started crying. Oh, Robin. <laughs> Robin, your name's Robin for one. Robin, your, you're, you're, your, your you're shirt's coming untucked. You're automatically a sidekick. You're, yeah, it's true. Yeah, you're automatically off the get-go if your name's Robin. I know Greg's not a great name, but I'm not a sidekick. Go by <laughs> go by Nightwing or something, you know? Yeah, go by fucking Thanos. Like, something strong. <laughs> Hitler. Go by Hitler. Hitler's better than Robin. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Hello, my Hitler, name's Hitler Jones. Hitler <laughs> certainly was not a sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> he had so he he was not an insecure man. <laughs> yeah, he had goals. We're gonna get so much hate mail. <laughs> the, I've gone I've gone along the Jew rail a lot this time. This episode, you did, yeah, I? you did, yeah. You're like giving hints to our future topics. Hmm. Hmm. There we go. Segway. Now the three Motley Crewers then found a singer by the name of Odine, who constantly wore ultra ultra clean white gloves. They got the band into the studio to record a few of the tracks Nikki had written, but when they ran out of time in the studio, Nikki convinced Tommy to go sleep with the engineer to get him more studio time. And during the recording, what, the, engi- the engineer was a girl. The engineer was a girl. Oh, I didn't actually put that. that together, but you are right. That's a that's a, that's really that's really interesting actually because there's not a very uh, the, even yeah, today they, there's not a very there's not very many women engineers. They usually dudes. I've never had a female uh, studio engineer. God, you know what? I'll say this now, and nothing against women at all. <laughs> That's the worst to preface a sentence with that. <laughs> but I, I've I, I've only seen one live engineer that was a woman. Um, I've seen really good lighting technic- technicians, lighting engineers that were women. Is uh, but uh, sound engineer, I've only seen one live, and she really did not do very well for the because she was the opening acts engineer, and she was really mm-hmm. bad. And then the um, then the headlining act came out. And he was really fat and had a giant beard. And I was like, this guy knows his shit. And when he turned the stuff on, it was like, it, that place exploded. It was so different. It was so good. Yeah. Uh, so th- but I, I do hope, I, 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 that's not to say that I don't hope I see a female uh, sound engineer that fucking rules it, but I've not seen very many. Yeah, the, the fact is, like all good sound engineers are always fat dudes with beards. Rick oh, Rubin, a, they look like Rick again? Rubin. Yeah, yeah, you look and you go, this guy's gonna make me sound fucking amazing, and he's happy to stand at the back. <laughs> if he's skinny, you know he's spending most of his time shooting up in the bathroom. Like I say, just all they need is just don't talk to him, don't demand anything, maybe get him a beer, and don't ask for gaffer type. Yeah. And he will do you well. As long as he's <laughs> fat and has a beard. That's yeah, all you need. Because he has spent his life at that desk. <laughs> just yeah. learning it. Oh my God. His fingerprints are just, his DNA is embedded in that. Like, if, he le- been- if he slowly meanders to the sound booth and then sits down with a... <sighs> yeah. You know he's going to be a great and, sound and In sound check, if he talks to you like shit, you know he's going to be, gonna be really good. <laughs> yeah. He's going to be like, snare, snare. <laughs> Where the fuck's the snare? Tom. Rat, I didn't say play a beat. I didn't say jam. Rat Tom. Floor Tom. And you'll get the drum kit sounding amazing. He will and you be. hate him at the time, but afterwards you're like, that sounded really good. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I oh, know, I oh, know. Now, during the recording of these uh, 
kind of, I guess, uh, rough cut songs. They were kind of like a, kind of like a demo tracks in that Mick told Tommy and Nikki, he pulled him aside and he said, he didn't like this Odin fella because he was a hippie and Mick hated hippies. <laughs> Instead, Mick wanted that quote, skinny blonde fucker. He had seen performing in a band called rock candy at Starwood. And then Tommy said, you mean Vince? Hell yeah. I mean, Vince, as mentioned before, Tommy had gone to school with Vince. Yeah. Tommy had also given Vince his number when he saw him perform at the Starwood, although he never called. (laughs) So Tommy decided to go by Vince's house to drop off a demo, and he begged him to audition for the band. Now, Vince Neil Wharton, our last member of the band, to complete our uh, quartet. Quartet, yeah. He was born on February 8th, 1961 in Hollywood, California. Fucking home country right there. He was where he was in his goddamn element from the moment he was born. Mm-hmm. He fucked if your mother grew up in Hollywood, he had sex with her. Yeah. If your mother grew up in Hollywood in the 80s at all, he had sex with her twice. Yeah, he was he was that typical in that day and age. Girls loved him. Not even typical. He was atypical with how many people he slept with. He was superhuman, the amount of women he slept with. <laughs> it was like five girls a night is, is, was, the, was the general amount. And then also, if he got adventurous, he would line up like 12 in a hotel room. It's, the dude is crazy. But that's for but next episode. Like that, he looks like that typical surfer dude. Like, you he know was. I mean? Just, and that yeah, was hot. That was hot now. And he had a, he was a surfer dude with an attitude, you know? And he, he was also a singer in a band. Wasn't a great singer, but he was still a singer. He we, was we, a relatively we, good singer. For, yeah, the, for their type of music, he was good. Yeah, it's a bit whiny, but at the same time, he had that persona. He had attitude. He, he could perform. He was a hell of a front man. He was very, yeah. very... It was, this is the thing about Motley Crue. It was all about the image. They were all yeah. about the image and and being aggressive. And as long as the music was slightly aggressive, it worked. This is when music videos and MTV meant a fucking lot. Yeah. Well, there isn't too much to say about Vince Neil, like his early life. Because in the dirt, they don't really go much into his early life. But, I mean, we, I know that he was interested in music from a young age, as well as a lot of sports. He was interested in, like, a lot of things like volleyball, football, um, surfing, that sort of stuff when he was younger. He does seem like... The popular kid at school, you know what I mean? For that yeah, time, definitely. he would have been the popular dude. All the definitely. girls fancied him. Like, yeah, he's a big fat lump now, but back then, <laughs> oh yeah, he was in his he was he was fucking primed in his uh, high school uh, high school years. Yeah, yeah, you can tell. But he started performing in school bands around the age of 15, 14, 15, But only a very few short years later, he joined his seminal band, Rock Candy, at the age of seventeen. Mm-hmm. And that band then went on to play the Starwood, where Tommy had seen him play. Mm-hmm. Tommy had approached him and told him that he should audition for his band. And they had brought the guys along with him to see him, Mick and uh, Nikki. They had all three gone to see him. And Vince said, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll come and audition just to not hurt his feelings. But in the book, Vince says, I was on the prime of my life. I was I was sleeping with any girl I wanted to. I was playing in a great band. We were selling out the Starwood. And here comes Tommy Lee to fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I can picture Tommy Lee's goofy face. Like, yeah. Yo, bro. <laughs> like, yo, bro, come on, man. Let's go. Let's just come and fucking audition for our band, man. We're killing it. And like, literally, he was very upset with this. Uh, Vince Neil was upset with this. See, at this time, Vince was actually working as an electrician, but while he was doing really well in this band, while he was at the um, at his job as an electrician, he wanted some job security, so he started dating the boss's daughter mainly I kind of for the job security, but mainly because she was filthy rich and he got <laughs> to drive her T80Z. 
and she had also introduced Vince into the world of shooting cocaine. Oh, I don't see why you would. I don't see a point in that. In seventeen, just, just at snowy. seventeen years old as well, is pretty intense. Like I, I took drugs at a young age, but I never s- injected it. Just snort it. It's coke. Yeah, well, avoid it if you like. Uh, <laughs> Do it if you want. <laughs> one morning, Vince woke up from a four-day binge that he and his girlfriend had been on, um, and he had to go to work as an electrician. I can't think of I can't think of anything worse than no. being on a come a come down and having to go to work as an electrician. Well, he also he he also really didn't sleep for those last four days, so he was yeah. very he was very out of it. And on the way to uh, the job, he was vomiting all over the TADZ inside. Um, <laughs> And he, he he basically just couldn't keep anything down, and he was like, you can imagine him slumped over the steering wheel, just like. <laughs> now, when he arrived at the job site, he kept seeing imaginary people and imaginary dogs just running by him constantly all day, and he said he spent most of his day looking off in the, into the distance, trying to figure out where this dog had run off to. <laughs> So he's pretty. He's, he's like that. He was it's pretty useless. He was obviously pretty useless at, at, at that job on that day. Now, when he got home from work that day, he slept for about twenty hours. And when he woke up, Tommy stopped by. Now, after Mick told Tommy that he wanted Vince and Motley Crew at the studio and they needed to get the, get rid of that fucking Odin, Tommy decided to go by Vince's house to drop off his demo tape and begged him to audition for the band. Like I said. He waited for weeks for Vince to get back to him. And then when Vince blew off the rehearsal, Tommy called again. And Vince said that he had accidentally washed his jeans. Uh, and Vince said that he had accidentally washed his jeans with Tommy's number in them and he couldn't get a hold of them. Although Vince never washed clothes in his life, nor did he ever wear <laughs> jeans. So that's the, that's the excuse I give my mom for not having her number side. <laughs> but, <laughs> But eventually, the group, Motley Crue, found another singer. And Vince says he was quite happy about that, probably because Tommy Lee would get off his back. And the mm-hmm. next week, Rock Candy was meant to play a house party in Hollywood. So Vince shows up in his full uniform, looking obviously dressed to the nines for a, a show in his rock mm-hmm. band. Uh, but the guitarist and bassist didn't show up, and Vince said that he felt like an overdressed prick just standing there with his drummer, uh, <laughs> while this crowd stand around them shouting for music. So when he got home, he calls the guitarist, and the cu- guitarist said that he decided that they wanted to play new wave music now. And he went, no. So he never, uh, so basically he just said, we're breaking up the band, and didn't even show up for the gig, which is a dick thing to do. But yeah. as it just so happens... Tommy called Vince the next day and Vince told Tommy that he had been screwed over by his band and he was looking to quit. So the two set up another rehearsal and Vince showed up driving his girlfriend's 280Z and this rehearsal resulted in one of Motley Crue's breakout hits, Livewire. Yep. Literally. Livewire! Literally within five minutes of that rehearsal starting, they had one of their top songs and mm-hmm. it was obvious that something special had happened and thus the stage was literally set and it was time for the band to take the world by fire or to set it on fire boom 
And that's where we'll pick up next week on part two of our Motley Crue series when we really dive into the gross, disgusting debauchery of their touring days and a lot of the tragic moments. And like I said, if you want to hear three parts of this, we will split it it into three parts. If you like, just email us at info at unfortunatehistory.com or join the private Facebook group. Post something in there saying we'd love to hear three parts. That's fine. We will put in the effort to do three parts for you if you like. Otherwise, we'll try to cram that story in there for the second part but next week we'll get very gross and very very tragic it's gonna get sticky it's gonna get very sticky it's very sticky left blowjobs right right blowjobs up blowjobs down blowjobs of the blowjob a little bit of heroin a lot of heroin more blowjobs <laughs> well greg i hope you enjoyed this episode obviously you knew quite a bit of the information either way I did, but still, it was nice to hear it. It's nice to not be totally clueless on an episode. I'm quite happy with this. Good. And uh, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Um, I didn't actually intend for this to be a multi-part series, but there is just so much to this story. It's I shit you not. Huge story. It is and huge. Again, it, we've only just covered, we've just unearthed the tip of the iceberg with this first episode. Honestly, we're going to the second one. It's going to get sticky. It's going to get sad. And it's it's going to get mental. It really does, and honestly. It does, honestly, it doesn't slow down. It just accelerates. It does, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I bought a book uh, researching the Troubles as a quick little, uh, little spoiler, I suppose. That book is the exact same length as the Smotley Crew biography. So <laughs> it's a lot of story to this. There's a ton honestly, of story to this. So honestly, there's a lot. I honestly hope you've enjoyed it so far. Uh, I look forward to doing next week's. I don't have much housekeeping for this episode, but next week I'm going to give a shout out to everybody that's left us reviews on all the different mm-hmm, sites. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening on a, on any sort of app, uh, say Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on Castbox, mm-hmm. or if you're listening on well, you can on TuneIn Radio. Um, I know a lot of people live on tune, uh, listen on TuneIn Radio. Thank you guys so much for the support. Honestly, no matter what you listen on, but if you're listening on something where you can leave a review. We will try to uh, mention you on the next episode mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the end of it. And also, we do have a poll out for a T-shirt, a limited edition run of T-shirts that we're going to be doing, some of, which are really cool. Yeah, so and you'll see you'll see more about that in our private Facebook group. I suppose we should make a quick mention of that. Um, definitely join the private Facebook group because we are, like Greg said, we're polling for doing a very, very limited run of T-shirts. We were only going to plan on doing twenty of them. And mm-hmm. selling those, and if uh, and I'm, I'm going to buy one, so nineteen, so nineteen, yeah. So <laughs> obviously, if you guys are interested in um, those, in like some new T-shirts, we're doing it basically to raise money for advertising and stuff because we we really just want to spread the word about the podcast. That's the main goal for us. Join the private Facebook group if you want to vote on those T-shirts and also see the T-shirts because we'll probably put mm-hmm. those up for mm-hmm. sale. The link for the sale in our private Facebook group first. So if they do get bought up, it'll be because people in the private Facebook group have bought them first. So like I said, Mm -hmm. they're very limited run, and we were planning on never releasing them again as purchasable. So these were going to be like limited edition t-shirts for us. So if you want to check those out, feel free to uh, join our private Facebook group. Just search um, Unfortunate History Podcast, and we will show you – well, you'll see it there. Also, um, please – 
I just want to beg this kind of, please share this podcast with your family and friends. It yeah. really does help us out. We've seen mm-hmm. a little bit of the drop of the, I mean, we're not seeing drops in listeners, but we are seeing a decline in the amount of listeners we receive each week. So mm-hmm. um, not blaming you guys. Obviously, we need to do better at putting out a bunch of content. But still, if you guys don't mind, please just tell your families and f- family and friends. We get messages all the time about people saying, I heard about this from a friend, I, my, my, you know, my so-and-so, my brother showed me this podcast and I love it. I mean, honestly, just tell your friends about it. It really, really does help us out. If one of you does it, if, if you tell two people, you know, the odds of you doubling our listenership by a couple months from now is exponential. So please, please just do it. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you want to follow the show, just Google Unfortunate History. Join our private Facebook group at Unfortunate History Podcast. If you want to follow me, just Google Cody Pennington. Greg? If you want to follow me, look me up on Instagram. It's Greg underscore skin 93. Give me a follow. Take a look at my shit. Yeah, take a look at his shit. Take a look at my shit. Not my literal shit, but it could be my literal shit. I'm very unpredictable. But with that said, unfortunately, finally, we got to go. So stay unfortunate. Stay unfortunate, guys. Turn up. Bye.